Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Our guest today is Christina Empedocles, a professional artist represented by the David B. Smith Gallery and the Jack Fisher Gallery. She's also a San Francisco-based financial planner and founder of Insight Personal Finance. She works with artists and creative entrepreneurs to manage their finances, and she writes about art and and money in her blog, Smartly, Art Plus Personal Finance. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Christina, you're an artist, and your business developed from conversations with other artists about money and financial health. Was there a decisive moment or a specific conversation that made you think, gee, artists really need this? I don't know if there was a decisive moment, but there were many, many conversations that led up to it. Starting when I was in grad school here in San Francisco at California College of the Arts, I was having many conversations with students and professors about how you make an art practice work financially. And what I found is that nobody seemed to have any answers. Um, Even the professors who had been in the business for a really long time. So I started teaching myself finance by reading books, by um, reading articles and just kind of trying to gather as much information as possible. And pretty quickly, I started to realize we were doing it wrong. (laughs) Not that there was, you know, a right way to do it, but that a lot of people in my community were, they really wanted to avoid um, dealing with their money. And I started to realize if I paid attention to this, I might be able to figure it out and help other people in my community ensure that they're going to be able to be artists over the long term. Now, your financial planning business is your primary career now. What did your art career look like? Tell us about that transition from art to finance. When I got out of grad school, I started basically doing everything I possibly could. I applied for every opportunity. I showed, uh, you know, wherever I could show. And I eventually found three galleries that I worked with. So my my life as a full-time artist was producing work for shows and for um, art fairs for those three galleries. And it was a real balancing act because what I eventually realized is that you front load the time and cost of your practice waiting for the moment when your work sells. And that amount of time that you're front loading or financing your practice before you get paid can can be very long. In the first five years of of being a professional artist, I just experienced this roller coaster of ups and downs and some pretty serious downs um, as I was doing that. Well the work I do, um, I, I'm a drawer and that requires a lot of framing. And because of my galleries in different parts of the country, it also required a lot of shipping. And those things cost a lot of money. Being able to have enough so that I could, you know, pay for my studio, pay for all of my living expenses, and then also finance that framing and shipping costs was really significant. So as I was getting better and better opportunities, more opportunities to show, I found that it didn't actually get any easier, which made learning finance and and formalizing my training as a financial planner seem more and more important. 
So, Christina, any regrets about uh, leaving full-time professional art and moving into this sort of new career direction? No, um, I don't have any regrets because my life now as a financial planner is actually really creative. I work with artists all the time and I'm helping them grow their businesses. I mean, the title artist is very broad. So I work with a lot of people in creative fields who are using their skills in different ways and being able to help them business plan and create sustainable lives for themselves is really, really fun and always challenging. And it's really meaningful. And I feel like I'm doing a lot to help the creative community. So no. So Christina, at CHF, we like to bust myths about artists and money. For instance, if you make great art, money just flows your way. That's one side of it. And another is this. You actually write that, quote, people think artists are bad with money, which isn't true, unquote. So let me ask you, what strengths do artists bring to the table when planning their finances? There are a lot of strengths that artists bring that I don't think we give them enough credit for. So one of those things is that we can be incredibly frugal. We are people with a lot of skills that we leverage to make things happen. Whereas maybe somebody in another field might have to outsource a lot of startup costs. Artists often just bootstrap and they can figure out creative ways to get things done. So that's a really, (laughs) that's a broad answer for something that I see often happen. The other thing that artists are great at is having the long view. The reason why most of us become artists is that we have big visions and the vision of what what we want to accomplish is what's going to carry us through all of the fluctuations of our career. So when you start with your goals in mind, you're probably going to see things through even when they get difficult. And I think anyone in business knows that there are going to be difficult patches as you're growing. So being able to stick with it is going to be a huge advantage. Another um, advantage that artists have that I see all the time is that we, we make work within a community and we often can um, use that community to help us move forward. There are so many things actually that artists uh, don't give themselves credit for. Thinking in an evolved way, in a different way about how to get something done. Um, It's not just about frugality or, you know, sticking with it, but having a different set of ideas to approach something. I'm always amazed with the homegrown strategies that other artists come up with that never occurred to me, but are brilliant. There's a lot there. There may be some, some problems in confidence that gets in the way of some of that, but we have a lot of advantages. So, uh, Christina, what's the primary financial goal for most of the artists you work with? From the financial standpoint, being in the studio is really, is one of the goals. Having the time is one of the primary goals for everybody that I talk to, because what happens is that people are splitting their time between their studio and their side job. And that side job, depending on how well things are going in the studio, can gobble up more and more of their time to the point where they may or may not have the luxury of that time in the studio anymore. So often when people are starting off, all they want is to be able to carve out the time away from that side job. And then at some point, people want security. Maybe that means getting to a certain price point with selling their work, 
but it's, I think it's more general as to knowing they're taking care of themselves in the future. So one thing I see all the time is artists have their heads down and they're working, 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 and they're doing it in a way where they're um, keeping their costs really lean and their income really lean because they want that time in the studio that's maybe not compensated. And at some point they raise their head up and realize, oh my God, I forgot to save for retirement or I forgot to save for my kid's college fund. And then the goal changes to make that art practice or that balance of creative life, not only finance the immediate moment and the time in the studio, but also start financing um, their savings and their retirement and their families. Okay, so one of your specialties is targeting the thorny issue of fluctuating income that comes from being a working artist. Why is that such a difficult thing for artists to do on their own and simply self-manage it? Well, it's difficult because it, that fluctuation can have a, a very long period. When I was working full-time um, on my art practice, I would have shows, showing occasions maybe three times a year. And that could be a show and two art fairs or a group show and an art fair and a solo show, something like that. And so that meant that my um, income came sporadically. And sometimes after a show, the work in that show would sell over the course of the next year. So it wasn't like I knew exactly how much I was going to make from any one effort or when that money would come in. But that didn't mean that my regular bills weren't coming in every month. Knowing, forecasting basically between income events, how long are you going to have to sustain yourself between income events? And making sure you have set aside enough funds to get you from point A to point B. That's not obvious for most people. So tell us about the strategies you actually teach to manage the fluctuating income. I mean, is it as simple as save all the money you can or, or what's an example of uh, an artist who had this trouble and a strategy that you applied? So save all the money you can is a good, solid strategy. <laughs> but it is a little bit of a blunt instrument, and it doesn't work for everyone, um, especially if you're keeping your income lean because you want to have time in the studio. One of the strategies that works really well is developing multiple streams of, of income. So when you only showing three times a year, then those gaps between shows are, are large and you have, to, um, you have to have a lot of savings behind you. And then what happens if something falls through? So if you have additional streams of income that can give you a baseline that helps you in between those fluctuations, it's going to really help. So for example, I have a lot of clients who do things like teach classes. They teach online classes, they teach after-school workshops, and that is something that they can schedule periodically in between, say, their shows, so that they're bringing in extra income in between those big income events, and it smooths out the fluctuations a little bit. Uh, sometimes people use skills that are totally outside of their art practice. So, for example, I have clients who work as social media experts, or they work as virtual assistants, where they're using skills that they've learned to manage their own art practices to help other people. And that brings in another baseline of income that helps support them in between those income events. Now, in your video series, Time Value of Money, 
you point to inflation and that it's easy to overlook it when you're your own manager. Well, first, can you define inflation for the layperson and say how it impacts working artists? Well, inflation is the gradual rise of prices across the economy. Right now, inflation is estimated to be about 2.56%. And that means that a year from now, we're going to look at sort of the general economy and things are going to be about 2.56% more expensive than they are today. And that means that a dollar I have in my pocket right now is going to be 2.56% less valuable next year. The problem I see with artists and inflation is that we put ourselves into um, situations where we're not trying to grow our income, but we're just trying to cover our costs. And that if something happens where maybe we have to change apartments, maybe we have to get a new studio, or some other curveball comes into this kind of delicate balance that we create, that we haven't adjusted for inflation, if we haven't adjusted for inflation for a few years, um, these new costs can seem very expensive. How impactful is inflation likely to be, do you think, um, in the emerging economy, perhaps especially in the current political climate of tariffs? Do you see it taking a, a turn on an L curve upward or remaining fairly steady in its incline? I'll say that I think inflation will always be an issue And right now, um, there are so many questions about the future of our economy that it's really hard to tell what the impact is going to be, if inflation is going to rise above that 2.56% or if it's going to um, hover right around there. I would say that we need to assume that over the long term, we're going to be experiencing that amount of inflation every year but that we could see some peaks and valleys. And right now we don't know if we're going to, we're about to experience a peak or if we're going to just trudge along at the average. But what I see is that if we don't think about inflation and um, we're just working, working, working away, and we're not gradually increasing our prices, several years can pass, 10 years could pass. And if all of a sudden you have to leave your apartment. This is something that happens a lot here in San Francisco. I'm sure it happens a lot in New York as well. The impact of inflation is immediate and painful because you are resetting a a big expense at the current market rate. So what is an effective um, strategy or set of strategies uh, to deal with inflation? And what do we lose by not executing some strategy or planning for it? Well, there's a few strategies. So the first is to consider your art practice a business and that you're trying to grow that business every year. Just setting the same goals every year is not going to be keeping up with inflation. And because of inflation, it will actually mean that you're making less every year. Just planning in your business to try to continue to grow your revenue. The second way is to save and invest. One of the really important things in my practice is to get my clients to a point where they're dealing with their current cash flow so that they have an income surplus. They are basically living below their means. They have extra money at the end of the year that they can save first in a cash reserve that kind of allows them to deal with some of that fluctuating income. So a chunk of money just set aside for emergencies. And then beyond that, to actually invest 
in things like broad index mutual funds so that our money is growing with the economy. There, there's too much to talk about to really get into, you know, the details of investing, but thinking of yourself as an investor, educating yourself, um, finding low cost ways to do it, and then, you know, making sure you have an, an income surplus that you can be putting towards investments so that money can be growing along above and beyond inflation and can support you in the economies that we're going to be faced with in the future. Well, so let's let's talk about that concept of investment and maybe some of the other financial hurdles um, that artists face. One of the most obvious ones, I think, to bring up is probably uh, retirement uh, and or uh, creating a legacy or, or leaving an estate. And uh, so let me ask you first and off the cuff question, uh, do you think it's realistic uh, for this generation of artists to think one day I shall retire? I shall stop working at 65 and live off of the proceeds of my uh, my prior life of work. I shall read novels from them. <laughs> I don't know if it goes exactly that way for artists, but what I do know from working with a lot of artists who are pr- approaching their 60s or in their 60s is that for some of us, it's not going to be a choice. People find later in life that they have health issues, they have family issues, that mean that their practice will change. It's absolutely necessary to plan for it. I know myself that I'm never going to stop creating things, but I do not want to hustle to find rent money every month when I'm 80. That doesn't mean I'm going to be sitting on a beach uh, drinking pina coladas all day long but I'm going to want to know that I have choices and that I have the freedom to do the kind of work I want and also to take care of myself. What I've found from working with a lot of different clients all over the income spectrum and all over the country is that some number of us are going to have curveballs thrown at us that we are not expecting. And that may be um, losing a partner either through divorce or um, uh, through death and having to figure out um, how to sustain ourselves in a new way. Um, It could mean having a health event that, you know, we weren't prepared for or expecting and and having to not only finance it, but um, probably change our lives. Saving for retirement, whatever that ends up being, is, is absolutely essential because our future selves are counting on us to take care of them. Well, that's funny. You know, this concept, I asked about this generation um, because this concept of saving for retirement, you know, I sort of regard the previous generation as the last generation that will retire. But something this the current generation, the one I'm in, um, and I don't mean by that, you know, a 10-year or 20-year span, you know, millennials versus Gen X or whatever. I mean uh, the generation of people now living. Um, but this, I, I tend to think that this generation has something unique in that we will simply live a long time compared to previous generations. 
um, I know that I plan to live a long time. And uh, so I don't think of it as my retirement savings as a re- retirement fund. I think of it as an old age fund. Um, I, I plan to live to a ripe old age. I'm cantankerous that way, but I'm going to need medical care and I'm saving some, but I know it won't be enough. Uh, and so I'll work until I die. And so for me, the important thing is that it be work and a work situation or a context that I, I love, welcome and respect. And the hitch uh, for a guy like me is very similar to what working artists, um, I think, face. I'm curious about your take on this. You see, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. So there's no employer there providing me a benefit uh, where they do matching or anything like that. I don't get any 401k matching. The money I put in is, it needs to grow. It needs to be well invested. I need to manage this myself, etc. So how does retirement planning, uh, Christina, for artists differ from, uh, say, employees with sort of implied benefits? Do they, do they need to really have a kick in the pants and do something different in, the terms, in terms of strategy that's less passive? They need a kick in the pants to get started. I see a lot of similarities between artists and entrepreneurs. Um, I'm sure you do, too. And one of the things that I see over and over again is that people in both camps are working so diligently on their practice, whether it's business or their art practice, that they're investing everything back into the business and they're not setting aside money um, for the future. And there are opportunities to invest in right now to further us along, which may pay off big later, but we don't know. And what that does is I see it as taking on more risk. So one of the things I do with my clients is I look at their overall risk profile across their financial lives. That's not just their risk tolerance for investing. It's um, all the different things that um, are subject to the unknown. So that's their income, that's their health, that's their housing, um, that's their relationships. And it's, um, and it's, you know, their investments. And so we look at the places where there is more risk and we try to, um, we try to add some things to balance it. So when we're not um, getting started saving for retirement or we're not setting aside that emergency cash reserve, we are putting more um, we need our income to compensate even more because these other things aren't working for us. So to kind of take the pressure off our income, finding any way to get started, that can mean um, opening up a Roth IRA. I mean, it can start with opening up a high yield online savings account and setting aside whatever money you have, trying to get that first $500 saved. Then meeting a new um, milestone periodically. So then getting to the first thousand dollars and eventually getting to between three and six months of living expenses, or even more if your income events are even farther away than six months. That suddenly starts to take the risk out of your income and balance it out. When you're an employee and you're working for a company where you have a 401k and they sign you up for it and they match your contributions, there's a lot you don't have to think about. But when you're doing it yourself, you're the one that has to pull all the levers and make it happen. And it can seem like a burden and something 
that maybe you'll think about next month or maybe you'll think about next year or after that next paycheck. But the thing is, the best time to get started is now because as soon as you can start building this structure, then it's going to lower the risk on your creative practice or on your business. Let's switch to uh, talking uh, about something else here. I want to ask you, uh, in addition to the blogs and the business, you have a Facebook group, and it's called Artists Making Dollars and Cents, and you share there a lot of resources for artists, and yet uh, artists tend to work alone. Why do you seem to assert with your Facebook group that collaboration and peer networking are viable or important ways uh, for artists to evolve their careers? Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you asked that question because this is the thing I realized early on is that none of us are talking about money. And so we're not learning from each other. And there are so many skills that we can pick up from our other artists. But if we're too afraid to talk about money and we're all making the same mistakes, then nobody's getting any better. And we also feel really isolated often, and we can even feel shameful about it. But when we start talking to each other and finding out what other people have done, and maybe we're in the same situation as somebody else, it no longer seems so terrible. So, and I say that because one of the first things that people say when I start talking to them is, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but, and then they tell me something completely normal that they're doing with their money. But because we we don't connect around some of these struggles we're having, it just seems like we're the only person in that boat. And it can feel very shameful. So having a group um, like my Facebook group where people can come in and ask questions or share wins or even share their struggles, it really helps everybody know they're not alone. Well, now you quoted a nerd wallet piece, how your money, uh, how your money story can help you break free. Uh, and that interests me. Uh, as a corporate storyteller, um, I was fascinated by that. I wonder, first, can you define it? Tell me, what is a money story? That is your origin story with money. Most people, everybody has one, actually. Not most people, everybody has one. And it's kind of their first impressions about money growing up. And it often revolves around their family. So when you ask somebody, tell me about your early impressions about money or how you feel about money or how things were with money when you grew up. All of a sudden, these stories come out and people make connections. I've seen it happen so many times where as somebody is telling me about how things were with money growing up, there's this light bulb that goes off. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh my gosh, that's why I do this. (laughs) And it illuminates some of the behavior that's just ingrained that may not have anything to do with our lives now, but has everything to do with, you know, how we first established our relationship with money. And it can be very, very powerful to to think about. If you haven't thought about your money story, I, I suggest everybody, you know, sit down for a few minutes and just write it out and see what it reveals to them. Now, does an artist's money story actually determine their financial strategy or their financial outcomes? And, and can you give me an example of a powerful money story? I think it can determine their outcome if they never really think about it. Um, if we just sort of let that 
story um, guide our intuition with money going forward, but I don't think it does if we recognize it and then decide to make deliberate decisions that are in our best interest. For instance, here's one. I had a student for a class I was teaching tell me about how she grew up with a single mom. And so they were always trying to save. Her mom was really frugal and that she grew up really frustrated with that. And she remembered very vividly going to the grocery store and picking out a box of crackers and her mom saying, no, that's too expensive. We're getting this other box of crackers of some crackers she hated. And that now she goes to the grocery store and she picks up the most expensive box of crackers always. And as she was telling me that, she was also realizing she has these ways of trying to be defiant with her money that really has nothing to do with her, her financial life now. Now she needs to be frugal herself. And so when she's kind of still fighting with her mom about these crackers and a million different ways over the course of a month, spending more money than she really should be, instead she can make the choice to protect her art practice by making some wise decisions about that spending. Realizing that feeling of I need to buy the expensive crackers came from a, a place from a long time ago kind of set her free to start thinking about the way she was spending her money now. I like that uh, metaphor. You know, I'm always looking for, there's the long version of the story, the one where you sit down and explain to your friend. There's the short version of the story that's uh, for quick consumable uh, purposes, the elevator doors closing, and then there's the one-liner metaphor of the story that kind of sums it all up, you know, like uh, Jim, he's uh, he's anger in a can, you know, <laughs> something like that. Um, and I like your thing. Uh, so if this uh, lady's name was Gwen, I would say, you know, she's Gwen, she buys the most expensive crackers. <laughs> you know, that's her thing. That's her, that's her money story. And then if the money story shifts, then it needs to shift and hopefully we get a new metaphor out of it. Gwen is the new Gwen. She buys the cheapest crackers on sale and only with a coupon. <laughs> or Gwen doesn't eat crackers, you know, something like that. Well, or Gwen <laughs> decides to buy crackers half as much as she used to, and then she saves that money that she would have spent on crackers in her 401k instead. That's what I hope for Gwen. <laughs> See, I just, I'm seeing charts and graphs and, you know, it's not as sexy as the Gwen. Expensive crackers all the time, you know, but I get it, you know, it, it's, I get it. It's the difference between a marketing story and a money story, I suppose. The money story's got to come with the, the charts and the graphs. Well, uh, so... Uh, on your finance site, you list uh, a six-step process to generate more prosperity. And one of those items is, uh, quote, plug the leaks, unquote, uh, another metaphor, which is about identifying inefficiencies uh, in spending to free up funds for things the artist values most. And, of course, you alluded to that with the Cracker story. But what are some other real-world examples of leaks that need to be plugged very often or that you frequently run into in artists' uh, professional practices? There are so many leaks that we may not know are there until we start paying attention. And these aren't necessarily um, for artists, but for everyone. Um, if you haven't really spent any time looking at your spending, I challenge you to pull out your last three months of credit card statements and categorize everything you spent. Write down gross, you know, make a spreadsheet, write down groceries, put all the times you spent money on groceries, 
then um, make the next category, whatever is meaningful to you, um, and see where your money goes. And you may be surprised to find that you're spending money in an uh, exaggerated way on something you don't really care about. You know, you always hear that classic example of spending too much on Starbucks lattes. But it's the reason why you hear it so much is that it's really, <laughs> it affects a lot of people. These ways where we kind of think, oh, this doesn't, this isn't really very much money. It's just a few dollars here. It's just a few dollars there. But if it turns into a bad habit, these things can be huge drains on our ability to save. And what's more important about, say, instead of spending money on a box of crackers or on a Starbucks latte, is looking at the opportunity cost of what that money could have done otherwise. So when you are saving and investing, that money, instead of just disappearing, is growing. So it's important to make sure that your spending is aligned with your values. Um, one thing I see all the time is that we sign up for subscription services, whether it's software or publications or who knows what it is, Jelly of the Month Club, that we're not actually really using or we're not getting a lot of benefit from and we forget about it. So when you go back and you look at your three months of spending, you'll probably find some of those things. And if you can sit down, cancel them all, you may find something like $80 a month. Who knows? Maybe more, maybe less. And when you find those leaks, it might seem like, well, I saved 80 bucks. That's not such a big deal. But when you multiply that by 12, you're getting to about $1,000 or close to it. And so finding these things that seem like small leaks, plugging them, and then taking the next step to actually reroute that money towards your goals, whether that's um, doing something for your business or art practice, or whether that's saving and investing, those small amounts of money can really add up to a huge opportunity cost that you can then take advantage of. You're kind of like Scrooge McDuck, you know, you're, you're like, well, if you could save $1,000 over a year and then put that into a fund with 13% compounded interest, eventually you'd buy a Brooklyn Brownstone. I hear it, though, because uh, I, I've done the same thing. You know, uh, I've gotten in and found, why am I subscribed to the Curiosity Channel in my Amazon? I, they're hitting me for six bucks a month here, and I'm not that curious. I don't. It was, I wasn't curious enough to find out what the Curiosity Channel is. Or I'll get it. It's software renewals hit me a lot. You know, we're, we're proud that you've automatically renewed your subscription to uh, cleanpressedshirts.com. And I'm like, oh, I look at my shirt, and I don't think I need these anymore. Can I? <laughs> I have my $275 back, you know. And so uh, I, I know what you mean. And I go through sometimes and just it's like spring cleaning and, and plug those leaks. But you have another strategy. So that if, if you, because it does boil down to at the end of the day, sure, $1,000 maybe in a year and Scrooge McDuck gets it up to, you know, $1,600, uh, you know, six months later. Okay. But your other uh, strategy that you talk about, or, or one of the things you talk about, is, is simply increasing income. And that's not new. There's no sexy metaphor for that. Plug leaks, I get it. I think you need one for increase income, you know, build the castle, you know, whatever it is. But isn't the increase income thing obvious? I mean, what specific strategies might, because an artist says, well, yeah, don't we all want to increase our income? What might be some specific strategies of increasing income that an artist might not have already considered? You know what I mean, like sell more art, but sure. But what else? <laughs> <laughs> First of 
all, I think increasing your income is not necessarily obvious. Um, I work with a lot of people who are maybe Gen X or older where increasing their income feels like something they're not allowed to ask of the world. And there's a lot of baggage around art and money. And so, so understanding that, first of all, a lot of people have a, have a hard time looking at what they make and thinking I should be making more. So just pointing it out for some people is really important. But the second thing to do is to basically look at all of your skills and see if you're using them to their fullest advantage. So what I was saying earlier about people starting side businesses as virtual assistants, as social media experts, there's all kinds of things that people have skills that they've developed in their art practice that they can then use to grow their income. And it just takes some um, confidence and determination and fictitiveness to decide that they're going to do it. And it does take time away from the studio, which is one of the biggest hurdles, because as you probably know, getting something started takes a lot of time. And then once it's started and, you know, the ball's rolling down the hill, then you can kind of turn your focus again back to whatever other things you're doing as well. But carving out that concentrated effort and having the intuitiveness to keep it going until it works on its own can be a challenge for a lot of people. I think there are many artists who don't see themselves as running a business or don't see themselves as entrepreneurs. And I think that in itself is a problem because then they maybe aren't looking at uh, ways to grow their income every, every year. Well, I, I can certainly identify with uh, at one time in my life, um, feeling that I didn't sort of have the right to ask the world for more. And I, I think a lot of that can be cultural. It can be based on where you're raised or who you were raised with or, or the context out of which you, from which you come. But uh, I suspect that there's some of that built into the economic status that society assigns to artists um, in the first place. And so I see a little bit of this sort of cognitive bias of, um, for lack of a better term, a, a, a steady state theory that, you know, you see it around uh, the environment, you know, as things have been, so they shall always be. We don't have to worry about no stinking flooding because there wasn't any flooding last year. And then, of course, the Arctic shelf uh, starts breaking off and you're like, whoa, wait, that hasn't happened before. Exactly, because there's a first time for this stuff, you know. And so I think that steady state bias sometimes can make us stay heads down thinking this is our lot. It cannot change. This is the way it is. And, uh, and to seek more almost requires us to imagine something that hasn't yet happened. Imagine a world that is different where the Arctic shelf hasn't broken off or where artists are not necessarily resigned to sleeping on the sofa, working part-time as a teacher or a barista, and maybe selling art in a basement show you know, or something like that. Like There is, not that that's, I mean, that's the low end but, of art maybe, but, uh, but in whatever uh, walk of life, um, what was really exciting about Clark Hewlings, uh, among other things, is uh, that he was constantly innovating new ways to sell. And he was at the forefront of thinking of new negotiations and deals he could chase and pursue and, and new markets he could bring into. So, so that 
really was one of the keys to his financial success. He was able to to push his income up by constantly envisioning a world that hadn't happened yet. And as a result, many of the things that artists take uh, for granted now, like the changes in estate tax, they're a result of guys like uh, Clark Healings, you know, plugging in early and going, you know, I think it could be different than this. You shouldn't have to burn your art when you die. <laughs> so so I, I'm excited about that. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm really appreciating what you're saying about um, don't just get locked into the heads down there's a there's a phrase for that i can't think of it but you're sort of locked into the the stable and you just do your work for the day and you'll go to sleep you don't think of a new world yeah well and what i see in my work as a financial planner that really concerns me is that i see women coming to me in their say later mid-career where they have been working head down, not increasing their income, not increasing their prices, working, basically earning lean so that they can have as much time in the studio as possible. And there's all of a sudden a catastrophic event where they that's not going to work anymore, whether that's a health event, whether that's a family event, whether that's something in their relationship or in their housing where they get pushed into a new economic reality and what they were doing, you know, in the previous day, week, month, or year is just uh, not going to sustain them anymore. And then all of a sudden, they not only have to figure out how to ramp up their income to support themselves, but they have to change this mindset on top of it. And that mindset is, can be very, very hard to change. I am always encouraging my clients to to start changing it now before, you know, before that curveball uh, gets thrown at them. Well, the big curveball, of course, the most recent enormous curveball came in 2007. Uh, but, you know, that principle of, hey, there's seven lean years and seven fat years, you know, and you better prepare, <laughs> store up your grain during the, uh, the fat years so you're there in the lean years. It's hard because uh, a lot of people will... Uh, poo-poo that and say, first on the steady state theory, oh, just because something happened before doesn't mean there'll ever be another real estate or credit bubble. That can't happen. But uh, there'll never be another 1,000-year flood uh, a year later in Maryland. But but at the same time, people think you're not thinking positive. Or you, you get the feeling or somebody tells you you're not thinking positive. Because if you're thinking positive, that means everything's going to be good every day from now on. And it just isn't, it isn't life, right? you got to prepare. Absolutely. And I think we do a lot of mental accounting with that idea that, okay, all I need to do is make, you know, another 300 bucks this month, and then I'm going to be able to pay for my rent, and then I'll have just enough to do this. And, you know, we may, with the best of intentions, be just reinvesting in the business, reinvesting in the art practice. What I can see very clearly from working with all of the different people I work with, not everybody's an artist, but is that something is going to happen, whether it's macroeconomical or whether it's very personal. And if we are not prepared, our art practice is the first thing going out the window. So I developed this philosophy early on that I wanted to have agency um, over the work that I decide to do. And to have that, I was going to need to prepare financially for whatever comes my way. And that meant becoming an expert and being immaculate with my money, that this privilege of having the ability to be independent with my work 
was going to cost me, I was, I was going to need to learn this stuff as daunting as it seemed. Now it doesn't seem daunting and it actually is very, very empowering. But I understand people who are getting started, it feels like, oh, it's too much. There's no way I'm going to learn this all. But really just starting by picking up a book and reading it and then picking up another book and reading it can give you a lot of uh, a lot to go on. Well, I think uh, the my favorite illustration, um, I like horror movies, and I, I think my favorite illustration comes from the sort of uh, fanatical cults that grow up of fans around horror movies. You're walking along, everything looks fine, and suddenly, zombies. So that's <laughs> it. You always got to prepare for the zombies, yeah. you know, because whatever, you're eating at a cafe in Williamsburg, you're enjoying your nice avocado toast, and next, suddenly, zombies. And so you've got to think about it. So, yeah, I love that. I, I, I take that as our takeaway today, that uh, prepare for the future because it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, let's say the zombies never come. What's the worst? that can happen from preparing. Then you have a really great chunk of money set aside. You have assets that are growing for you and you can use them for something else. I can finally sell that extra chainsaw. I don't, I don't need it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it just opens up choices for you know, your, your future self. You, you can always decide to spend the money if you need to. So. What I see is people saying like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull in my spending or this is so hard or, you know, I just don't want to deal with this. I don't want to think about it. And the thing is like, let's say you try it for a month where you're really paying attention to how money is coming in and how it's going out. Um, what's the worst that can happen? You end up with a few extra hundred dollars that you can use for something or, you know, you can decide to save or you can just spend it on a really expensive brunch for you and your friends and you're back in the same place you were. But maybe you learned something. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Christina's work, visit InsightPersonalFinance.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening and thank you, Christina. It's been really great having you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.